Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. Psychedelics with some of my favorite people in psychedelics. It is way more fun to have these types of conversations when you have super educated individuals who not only understand the system in Canada, but they understand it in a way that most people don't even realize it's happening. There's a movement. It's pretty huge. And Theracil and Aaron Victory, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of in it. You're kind of super in it. And I'm really excited to have you on. Spencer, I was grateful because it thought it was going to be just two vets, right? And when two vets get together, that turns into its own thing. But you've brought something different to the conversation. And I think you bring out something really unique in Aaron and you bring out a, a different way of describing psychedelics. And you also give it a, a different voice when you have you two together in a room. So instead of in a room, we're in a chat room. And I'm really excited to be able to actually have this conversation about psilocybin and our government. So people can stop asking me what the hell I am talking about. Because most of the time, I just point and say, go talk to these guys. They're the smart ones in the room. <laughs> so welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kelsey. Oh, you're so welcome. So we were just kind of touching base a little bit on the conversation that happened. I think it was last week or this week where we had a whole bunch of psilocybin applicants get turned down really aggressively, really quickly. So I don't know before we get into that, if, if Spencer, you want to talk a little bit about Theracil, who you are and really what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Theracil is a nonprofit coalition, uh, and it's really a grassroots coalition made up of healthcare practitioners, citizens, uh, and a lot of patients who are all in need of accessing psilocybin. Um, and we really got together in about 2017. That's when Bruce Tobin, our founder, uh, after doing some training with psilocybin, realized uh, the you know the absurdity of working with patients who the government said, you know, you're allowed to end your life with medical assistance and dying, um, but you're not allowed to try a mushroom uh, that in, you know, clinical studies are, are showing like 80% effectiveness uh, after one dose uh, in achieving clinically significant decreases, anxiety, depression, demoralization. Um, so Bruce put together a application to the Canadian government uh, so that he and a couple of his other peers could work with psilocybin and patients. And Pretty much for three years, the government sent him on a wild goose chase to put together data and uh, collect, you know, signatures from different health authorities and, and different members of parliament. 
Um, and so by the time that I came on board in 2019, you know, we had quite a, an awesome, you know, network of people who were trying to work with Bruce to get to this, uh, to get this exemption approved. Uh, lots of international um, folks, uh, researchers, and then a ton of patients and healthcare practitioners. So in 2020, uh, when I came on board, we put together the organization uh, and, and put together the mission and vision that would focus on four core pillars. The first, advocacy for access to psilocybin. Uh, the second, professional education, so training healthcare practitioners, how to use psilocybin to treat their patients. The third uh, was public education, so making sure that you know, we're communicating like we're doing right now with the public on the merits and limitations of psilocybin. And then the fourth being research. And over the past two years, uh, so since 20, early 2020, um, we've been able to support through just lobbying and, and asking for the Minister of Health, uh, who we'll be talking a lot about in this podcast and who Aaron's um, you know, looking for help from, um, asking the Minister of Health, so an actual elected official, someone with a compassionate heart who's able to make tough and, and good decisions uh, for exemptions to psilocybin, because the Minister of Health Canada can, has that power. Um, and so in the last two years, we've helped about 67, 68 patients get access to psilocybin and 19 healthcare practitioners. Uh, but we've got uh, another 130 healthcare practitioners with exemptions who are currently waiting on them and dozens of patients who are also waiting. Uh, so we're trying to make regulations to speed that up. So you're tackling it from all aspects. You're not just trying to rely on advocacy to do the work. You're actually trying to implement the change in the law, which is really fantastic because I, you see so many people in this space, they're trying to do advocacy work, but there has to be, there has to be advocacy with education coupled with changing the rules or there's really no point. I mean, we can talk about psilocybin until we're blue in the face, but if we're not able to, to make it legal, people are, are going to always have the stigma with it. They're not going to want to even to attempt to use it when it could be so much more beneficial than, than so many other different types of uh, medications, pharmaceuticals, whatever you have at end of life therapy, psilocybin has, you know, drastic, um, it runs the gamut of what it can really help heal with. And so Aaron, I kind of came to you through, I believe it was through Theracil the first time. That's how you and I kind of touched base the first time when we did a panel and you're another vet you're, you've been in a lot, you were in a lot longer, a lot longer than I was. You did a little bit of a different type of job. So can you tell everyone a little bit of who you are and what you're trying to accomplish with, you know, Theracil in this conversation? Absolutely. So I spent 14 years in two RCR, Canadian Infantry Battalion, and a good chunk of that in reconnaissance and sniper subunits and banged out a couple deployments to Haiti and Afghanistan in the mid 2000s when that was still, uh, that was still a thing. So um, I find myself in the, in this, in the psychedelics conversation because I'm the founder and chief strategy officer for a drug development company called Apex Labs. And one of our senior advisors, David Wood, is a advisor uh, to Theracil and actually uh, helped uh, draft the, uh, David drafted the regulation. So Theracil is not only proposing access for Canadian citizens, they've actually brought forward draft regulations that mirror the cannabis regulations that came into place in 2001. And because uh, that's what Theracil feels is uh, best suited as a route for medical access. So about just over a year ago, David Wood introduced Spencer and I, and just the language that the, the regulator Health Canada uses in these conversations, they talk about, you know, treatment, they talk about like treatment resistant, emergency 
situation. So like they're, they're the language that they're using is basically describing the veteran population, a population that suffers at these from these mental health conditions at you know much higher rates by any data that you would look at. It would be PTSD would be about four to six times the rate as a Canadian civilian population. So I just, I see Theracell and groups like Heroic Hearts and uh, Vet Solution with Marcus and Amber. I, yeah, yeah, I like, they, they, I literally just caught, I literally just caught that. I, I think that veterans are going to be a great voice uh, in North America for regulated access to a product that, you know, can have a, a true certificate of analysis and a COA to test for heavy, heavy metals and make sure that the product is made under, you know, the conditions that it should be made under. Because if you want to normalize this, you know, there, it, it has to it has to go in stages. People aren't just going to accept it. Although the Canadian public, you know, not only with veterans, but with just, you know, with uh, regular Canadian citizens, you know, over 65% of Canadian citizens believe in access to psychedelics for therapeutic benefits. So yeah, that's how I find myself in the conversation. But it's really funny that you bring up those statistics because um, there you, you couldn't be more, you couldn't be more accurate. The, the emerging emergency benefit for a community would be, you know, veterans and, and not only just veterans, but veterans, especially since August of last year. So there's been an increase. I just, uh, yesterday I spoke with a, with a guy that's been on my show before and named Nick Betts. He's the producer of, um, a vet TV documentary docuseries that just came out called, um, let's talk about the war. And it's really aggressive and it's really hard, hard hitting. And Spencer, I recommend you to watch it um, if you haven't seen it, Aaron, have you seen maybe Aaron, maybe I don't know if it would. We'll talk about that, Aaron, if that's a good idea or not for you. Uh, I've seen it. I had to walk out of the room within the first episode with halfway through. So it's serious shit. That being said, there's been a 46 in 46 uh, percent increase in veteran suicide since 2021 of August, because every veteran who did deploy in that 20 year war, you saw a massive subset of them questioning if the deployment was for what was it for? What did I lose my body for? What did I lose my friends for? What did I lose my mind for? And so the increase just now, just from this ending is so significant. That should be cause enough for all of the alarm bells to go off, not even counting the 20 years of active duty that we had veterans coming back tour after tour after tour. And now we are just seeing this explosion of suicide like we've never seen before. And somehow it is not part of the conversation on a daily basis ever. And to see psychedelics making its way into that, having used utilized them as a tool, I do understand that there are limitations to them as well, though. And that's something I think a lot of people don't really want to discuss. I don't know if it's because they don't want to have that. Um, they don't want to make it seem like they're downplaying the use of psychedelics or that they are uh, more dangerous, you know, we don't want to make it worse, seem worse than they are because they're already so stigmatized. But I do think it's really important to acknowledge that there are limitations depending on the individual's psyche and really if they should be engaging in something like an intense psychedelic. I think, Spencer, you might be great to kind of go into that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And and you're absolutely right that, you know, some people are a bit afraid of not speaking or of speaking of the limitations when, in fact, all substances have limitations, all, you know, drugs, um, and excuse my use of the word, but all drugs have, you know, risks and, and no right. drug is a safe drug. Um, and that goes for, you know, the drugs that we get from the drugstore, like Advil and Tylenol. Um, and it applies to all the other ones like sugar and caffeine that we use every day. Um, and specifically to some of the most absolutely 
deadly drugs that we have uh, in the world today, such as alcohol and benzodiazepines. Um, those are really bad drugs, right? Especially those last two, um, they can kill you if you get addicted and stop taking them. Um, so I think we all need to have, you know, a better conversation about the harms of some of these substances. And what we're trying to do at Theracil is be very clear that we're not saying that these are safe drugs. Um, what we're saying is that in some instances, a medical professional, and I know that we get a lot of flack sometimes too for being so insistent on the medical use of these substances, but it really comes from a point of caring and, and a harm reduction is we don't want everyone using them because we don't know enough about them to say that they're absolutely safe. We can say, however, that they are safe and a reasonable medical decision for people who meet the criteria that we're allowing access through and for people who are supported by healthcare practitioners, right? So when you're at, you know, at a high risk of, of suicidality, um, your doctor and you may decide that, you know, the drugs that we're using, the therapies that we're using, they're not working. Psilocybin may be a reasonable medical decision at that point. And life is about taking risks, right? There are always risks to be taken um, whenever you're making medical decisions. And this is especially true for many of the palliative patients that we started off treating where most of the drugs that they were using were dangerous. They were, you know, they were actually designed to harm the body. A lot of cancer drugs are designed to actually kill the cancer, to kill cells. Um, but again, it's all about risks and that way, you know, what's better, a surgery or, or this, uh, you know, chemotherapy uh, drug. And, and that's why we trust doctors to make decisions and who we shouldn't necessarily trust are government agencies or politicians to decide when their opinion is greater than the doctor's opinion, because, you know, we are a society made up of individual people with individual problems um, and doctors who are able to assess certain situations and say, for sure, this broad policy may work, but right now it doesn't. Right now it hurts this person. And that's what we're advocating for is that these drugs that we admit are not always safe in some instances, not having them is more dangerous. Not having them uh, is going to increase the likelihood of someone uh, you know, uh, suffering serious consequences from either self-harm or from harm from other substances, such as, you know, the alternatives uh, that they may have to choose from, such as, you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, which can, which can be horrible for some people. Well, other drugs that people, you know, have been told their whole lives are safe. We, we know that to be a lie. Like, I mean, evolution happens. We, we change and we, and we decide Things are going to be dangerous when they're not and, and safe when, when, when they aren't. It, we, we're making decisions based off policy, which is really dangerous because we're not talking about the science. And it's really weird because I feel like we could be talking about two very different topics right now that are both very obvious and prevalent in society at this current moment. And I do wonder if we should have just got the truckers on the psychedelic movement a long time ago. We might have had some movement in life. Um, but I digress. My point is, I think that our governments are making decisions based off of political ideology rather than what our society really could use and the benefits really outweighing not using them. I do wonder, I do wonder about why psilocybin specifically Theracel targets. Is there plans to maybe look at other other types of psychedelics or drugs, I'm using the quotations if you're just listening, that, that might be helpful towards other individuals that are already in the same category as, you know, the people you're advocating for? 
Sorry, are you talking about other just substances or? Horrible? Yeah, yeah, like other psychedelics, like because I know I know that they're so uh, they're focused on psilocybin. Yeah. I wonder, is there uh, down the road, is there uh, a path to others or do you think that there should be? I mean, for sure. And and I'd almost toss this over to you, Erin, like, you know, it, I, I'm sure we've all, and on this podcast, it's been discussed, you know, the, the use of MDMA, right. To help PTSD. I mean, I, I think it goes as far as saying like, Erin, is that something you've talked about with your doctor, right? Does your doctor believe it's a nice, it's a wise decision or is there a therapist out there who'd be willing to support you? And it all goes back to the same argument is what do the patient and doctor want, right? And, and what risks or decisions are, are they willing to make? Um, so, you know, for sure, I think that there have been, there's been a lot of studies behind a lot of psychedelics, uh, LSD for addiction, uh, MDMA for PTSD, uh, Ibogaine to help people get off of opioids. I mean, yeah. I think, I think MAPS work with PTSD and how far they've taken it down the clinical pipeline is, you know, why MDMA is highlighted. And then, you know, psilocybin, I think, just became kind of, unvo- you know, involved to microdose psilocybin and people saw the benefits uh, from that. Me, me personally, like, I know that there is other veterans out there who are utilizing the, the special access program where the amendments uh, were made to include comp psychedelic compounds like MDMA and psilocybin, where there are veterans out there who are looking with their physician's oversight and their physician approval to access psychedelic assistance therapy specifically with MDMA. So Aaron, for you, when you got out of the military, what was that? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back a little bit because I want people to really understand where you came from when you got out to where you've been able to get to because of different types of healing and different types of, so can you kind of walk me through whatever you're comfortable walking me through? Uh, through my trans, like my transition yeah. out of the military. Yeah. So, uh, 2016, I was medically released from, uh, the military and with, uh, with a traumatic brain injury that was misdiagnosed at P- as PTSD at first. So it took me a little while through the transition to figure that out. But once I did, I actually have, like, I, I know there's a lot of horror stories out there from guys who, you know, I spent 14 years in the military from 2002 to 2016 in an infantry battalion and left for a little while to do some trials and research and development work through, through what was called the Sniper Systems Project, just implementing improvements and advancements and uh, equipment that was used. But other than that, I was hanging out in an infantry battalion and doing the things that guys do in an infantry uh, battalion. And, you know, that's my that's my culture, my community still and I know that a lot of my buddies had a rough transition but my transition out of the military was fairly seamless like I was lucky enough that in 2017 I got selected to do the Invictus Games in Toronto and the connection back to doing something with sport and physical activity was great for me and then finding things like medical cannabis and THC and CBD and not sitting around and smoking 10 grams a day and just you know zoning out and being a zombie but like a responsible use of those compounds and then breath work and you know vinyasa hot flows and you know a, a lot of the 
a, a lot of the guys that I know that you would never think would try some of these alternative treatments when they got into the military and they were done their 5, 10, 15, 20 year careers doing whatever they were doing. They were more interested in the alternative therapies because they had been prescribed, you know, SSRIs and antipsychotics. And then they had to take pills for their stomach because those pills affected that. And then they, you know, and then it was just, you know, a laundry list of, uh, of things. And sadly, like, you know, a shitty transition out of the military, whether you're Canadian, UK or US veteran in that time period is kind of the norm. Right. So I feel like I locked out through the transition period. I started working in medical cannabis almost right away with uh, some veteran focused clinics. And through that, uh, started uh, my own consulting company, working with licensed producers and just giving them uh, insights into the veteran community. Because, you know, the, uh, in Canada, veteran patients remain an anomaly with blanket insurer coverage for our medical cannabis. So just for perspective, the last 12 months, there was about 600 million bucks made in Canada and just in the medical market and veterans accounted for $120 million of that. So fully 20% of the cannabis consumed medically in Canada was reimbursed through Veterans Affairs Canada's. And not only that is that is at like one of the lowest, especially over the past two years. I don't know if you knew about this, Aaron, but there's been I'm sure you have. There's been a significant uh, decrease in what Veterans Affairs is willing to cover, depending on what your doctor states. So if you were initially given prescription of three grams a day, they would only cover three grams. If you tried to up or increase or you had been increased already, they were knocking you down. So there was people that I had heard of. Sorry, not to tangent here. You know, this is how I am. Um, yeah, yeah. You guys get it. Um, so there was, uh, I was speaking with a doctor that I knew in our space. Uh, I, Aaron, you're up here um, in our space. And there was a discussion about the increase or decrease of cannabis because all of a sudden Veterans Affairs was anybody over five grams was losing their, their, their benefit for it. You were not going to be able to get more than what they said. And there was vets who were on 10 grams a day. They weren't vegging out. They were literally functioning. They had gone from never being able to leave their homes to working full-time jobs, supporting families, really, really thriving. And then now that Veterans Affairs cut them back significantly, you would see a massive decrease in their health and it would correlate right alongside. And that's 600 million. That's just based off of what they've allowed us to have. If we got our doctors to actually fight a little bit harder, some of ours do, some do not because they don't know the ins and outs of veterans affairs or the proper way to do the paperwork in order for veterans affairs to give them the benefit that they should be getting. You would, could you imagine if we could actually have legitimate access where you didn't have to fight tooth and nail to claw to get the prescription. I mean, 600 millions, that's a drop in the bucket. Well, it's 600 million is the entire Canadian medical market. 120 million is the veteran portion of that. And that's generated from just under 17,000 veterans. So 17,000 yeah. veterans is like, is not representative of a large group. Like there's 800,000 give or take self-reported veterans in Canada. You know, there's, there's, there's a few reasons why I think veterans are leery to access medical cannabis. Sometimes, sometimes I think it's the reputation of some of the clinics from the past and how veterans were treated at those locations. I think it's how they got treated by the licensed producers, but I agree with you. I think that there's a fraction of the veterans utilizing the veterans cannabis reimbursement program and physicians, you know, less than 10% of physicians are comfortable according to the, uh, the Canadian college in prescribing medical cannabis. 
It, I do wonder, do you think it's because the college then often looks at those doctors in a different way? Because I do know for a fact that I've had doctors who have struggled with the idea of doing that because they've had their licenses threatened just at the idea of cannabis being an option. I, I, I do think that physicians who prescribe medical cannabis as a course as a, of, you know, alternative therapy are looked upon differently, you know, than, than, a, than a physician uh, who doesn't. But, you know, I think that a lot of that is changing because a lot of physicians are uncomfortable because they just don't know. Like a phys physician's first job is to do no harm. So if you don't know, if you're not educated on the endocannabinoid system and the receptors and about what CBD and CBN and some of the, you know, the minor cannabinoids actually do and what ailments they can treat, I think a physician is in the right not to prescribe that. But, you know, that, that said, I'm glad to see that some of the colleges, uh, physician, like the colleges and physicians in North America actually have training courses on it now. So, if, you know, it, again, it'll just become a, you know, a matter of destigmatizing de 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 the actual prescription of uh, of medical cannabis like it'll be a matter of taking the stigma of a physician prescribing a drug product that contains a psychedelic psychedelic compound whether that's mdma whether that's psilocybin you know what whatever is you know we need regulations like patients are going to access this physicians are going to treat patients it's just going to not be regulated you know, it's not as if Health Canada denies these exemptions, whether patient or physician, and that just goes away. And those people just say, oh, well, the relief I was getting from this chronic condition because Health Canada said no. Right. Like, I'm not asking like with my exemption, like I'm not asking uh, the, the federal government for permission to access psilocybin. I, I'm going to access it. There's no like I'm telling I will. you it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So so now, like the question of access is satisfied. I can go on any number of illicit sites. I can go, you, you can access it any way you want, but those illicit sites aren't tested. They're not regulated. And I believe that regulations would solve these, would solve some of these problems. And I'd like to even take that a step further, Aaron, and say that not only, you know, are these, are these sites just open, they're, they're not enforcing it. The Canadian government is, is, you know, turning a blind eye. That's the exact right way to put this because you're absolutely right. We've got patients and healthcare practitioners saying, we're going to take psilocybin. We'd like you to sign this paper to justify or allow us uh, to do it, you know, with patients and, and not have to worry about the law. Um, because either way, the patients are going to do it. It's going to happen either way. And either way, you can walk downtown Vancouver here, and I'm sure there are other places in other cities, and you can go on websites and you can just buy these mushrooms. And the police will walk into these dispensaries and they'll say, no one's selling cannabis here, are they? And that's it. Um, but no one cares. And the laws aren't being enforced. And there were actually recently, you know, like a year and a half ago, changes made uh, by the Justice Department, uh, prosecutors guidelines saying not to prosecute anyone for drug use. So there's a real problem here. Uh, when, you know, it's not even like they're changing policy, it's just lazy policy. They're just ignoring your issue. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like the solution is so clear, and that's exactly why we put together the regular medical, the regulations, the medical regulations. Is like by not going a step further and and realizing that we're not even going to enforce these laws that try to criminalize uh, these substances by not taking it a step further and allowing doctors to work with these patients, we're actually doing harm to Canadians who are going to be using these substances. We're we're blocking doctors and therapists from getting training, and we're blocking them from working with the patients who are using it already. So it's it's really dangerous and it's it's a bad way for the government to respond to this crisis. Well, I mean, 
God, I know you're an optimist, but Jesus, are you not seeing the writing on the wall? We're really struggling to get any sort of rights to anything. And I think that's a big problem. I think the whole time there should be things that should be regulated just for the general safety of human beings, not because it does anybody any good or that there needs to be all of a sudden all these dispensaries popping up with psilocybin, but it's, we should just have the the ability to regulate what we already know and the government clearly states and knows to turn a blind eye to that we're going to take anyway. So why wouldn't you want to just better your society and give access? I, I'm, I'm frustrated with the process and I can only imagine that you are as well, but you seem like you said, you're very optimistic about this. And I know it's because you've been able to get people access. You know how to get this done. What is it that the health minister of Canada is struggling so, so hard with that there, there needs to be people turned down for, for eating a mushroom. I, you really need to lay it out here for me because I don't understand what the qualms are here. So, I mean, this is my personal opinion and, and, and what I can see from the situation um, is that bureaucracy is not always good. And the more and more bureaucracy you put into a society doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be safer and more effective. You know, there's kind of like these diminishing returns on size and, and role of government. I think that's like, I don't think that's a controversial opinion either. I'm pretty sure that's good. No. <laughs> um, and that's what's happening here is the Minister of Health, we've got no problem with the Minister of Health. And that goes for the past minister, Patty Haiju, and the current minister, Jean-Yves Duclos. Uh, they're both wonderful people. They're incredibly intelligent. And when you put the question to them, can this person have psilocybin or is medical assistance in dying their only option? I mean, they're human beings and they go, holy shit, let's quickly give them access to psilocybin. The problem is, is that that logic doesn't apply to bureaucracies. So when we send in these messages to the minister, I bet you he hasn't seen any of these 130 healthcare practitioner exemptions. Otherwise, he would have granted them immediately. And I'm kind of speaking on his, you know, I'm speaking about it because this is what it seems the past ministers and, and has happened in the past with patients that we've uh, helped through the court process is before the court hearing, when the minister's you know, gets the notification, hey, we're, we're going to court with this patient, they step in and say, this is ridiculous. Um, so bureaucracies, the people at Health Canada, I mean, it, it's, it's mind-bogglingly painful to be on a call with them and let them know, hey, this patient's going to die in seven days, an undignified and painful death if we don't get them access to psilocybin. Um, can you please grant it immediately? And their response is, there are clinical trials that you can use in every exemption is dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. It's like, no, I'm talking to you as a human being and the doctor's on the call and the patient is on the call. It's like, please grant us this access. And it's like, it's like robotic, like speech. And it's because they don't actually have the power just to grant it. Only the minister does. So this system by which people need to get access, section 56, is flawed. It's flawed because there's no one person responsible, no compassionate heart you know, at the end of the day, making the decision, unless it gets up to the minister's level. And the minister has to deal with 37 million Canadians right now, right, who are probably suffering from a whole, uh, you know, swath of other uh, mental and physical illnesses. So it's really just a matter of, of creating a better system that puts power into the hands of individuals, out of the hands of the government, and into the hands of individuals. Um, and I think that would fix a lot of things, especially when those individuals are doctors, right? So those, if those individuals, how would you see that happening? Because if this, if this really is one health minister for all of Canada and that person has the right to grant these, is there, is it not fair number one for simplicity's sake to ask that 
one day a month, that individual sits down with the psilocybin exemption cases and goes through them for a day, just one day out of the month. Fuck it. One day every six months. I don't care. But an attempt at that, is that not for simplicity's sake to just get the ball rolling, to be able to study, to be able to treat the people, to be able to train the doctors, to be able to take this off your plate? Should you not be at least attempting to build a better platform to allow a trickle-down effect? Well, I mean, it sounds right, but in all honesty, that wouldn't work too. That's too much time, right? One day a month Mm. is you only get a couple days in a month and that's too much time to spend on a small group of people who, who may or may not be asking for, for access at any given point. I mean, what really needs to change is we've got to get a response and a quick solution, a fix, so that the minister doesn't need to spend any days a month doing that, right? What we need, and I think what... I'm saying in the interim, while we're getting doctors trained, while we're giving the physicians the tools, I'm saying, isn't there a way that we can do this more efficiently in the meantime while things are being put in place? Oh, absolutely. Like, in that meantime group exemptions, right? And we've asked for a group exemption, just allow anyone in our program, right? Give us some of the uh, power to uh, just say that if you're in our program, if you meet all of the criteria that the other patients or healthcare practitioners met, uh, then let's just assume you get an exemption because God damn it, we're all equal in this country, right? So it's kind of a right? no-brainer. Um, so yes, absolutely, those measures can be taken. And then obviously the long-term ones are like, what's the solution? medical regulations. And in fact, there may actually be a solution one step ahead of that. It's like change the CDSA, the Canadian Drugs and Controlled Substances Act, so that it's not the minister's responsibility to determine who gets exempt from those drug laws, but the doctors. And if the doctor makes a stupid decision, they'll lose their license, right? That Mm -hmm. we've got a system in place to protect from that. Um, The minister, they're not going to lose their license if someone gets hurt, right? So there's, there's actually more accountability and it's a better system right? A more robust and less fragile one. If you just give the doctors the ability to decide who gets exemptions to the drugs, because drugs are drugs for some people, they're harmful for others, they're medication. Right. And I think that's perfect. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's gotta be a way to do this, that it can be a, a lot faster. And we're not sitting on this the way we are. I would like to think trying to get something all the way up to the minister is, is no different than probably getting something to the Supreme Court. It's it's the, the steps that need to be taken, take years and, and time and money and resources. And most of the time, these people don't have any of those and it should just be our God given, right? Um, oh, I said God in a sentence that hurt. Oh, God, the world. I mean the world. Cause that is a struggle for me. Sorry. I just had like a Catholic moment from a childhood thing where I'm like, Oh, that's not what you meant. You meant to say the universe chill out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did that. Um, it's, it's wild to me because I, I, I can understand p- people wanting to protect society and, and humanity from, from things that can be potentially harmful. I can understand that. And I can respect that. But then there's that part of me who's like, yeah, but we're super cool with giving benzos to like kids and being like, it's no problem. We don't really need regulation. So I, the the optimism that you have and the positivity that you radiate when you're looking at this is so needed. And the patience you have is, is a lot. I, I, I don't understand how you do it. For you, Aaron, when you're looking at all of this and, and you're going, okay, I want to, I want to attempt to get exempt. How, how do you feel about this process and, and being on the other end of it? You're actually, he's fighting for you and you're, and you're get someone who's trying to fight for himself. So how frustrating has this process been or how positive? 
But so I see, I, I see it like Spencer. I do see it as a positive where there is like, there's no, that I know of, there's no other system like this in the world. Right. So I still have the opportunity to apply for an exemption that said I'm 150 some odd days waiting for access, which is, you know, why I like that Spencer was talking about a class exemption, like, you know, a group exemption to identity. And that's, you know, again, that's where like I come into the conversation is I really feel like veterans aren't the end point of the conversation for access to psychedelics, but they're going to be a great group to focus on in terms of, you know, who will be next in the, you know, in broader access to psychedelic compounds. So, you know, a group exemption focusing on veterans would be fantastic. So if you had PTSD, you know, if you were a veteran with PTSD, you could, didn't have to go through the onerous process and time consuming process of the section 56 exemption. You just met those, you know, exclusion or inclusion criteria. So for, for me, it, it hasn't been that frustrating. Like I said, like I've been microdosing since last January psilocybin through you know the salmon stacking method and combining that with breath work and physical activity hot yoga flow like i, I just i i really have noticed a benefit for that and, and i'll say that as well you know a lot of things in the veteran community like when cannabis you know when the clinics started coming out and guys were like well this is it cannabis is the end all be all that's all you need and you know guys are going to say well psilocybin saved my life and this saved my it's a combination of things, right? Like there's no miracle drug that's going to help you. Life's shitty and hard, even after you're not banging it out in the Panjway district, right? Like life's hard for everyone. But I think that veterans are a fantastic group to point out, especially in Canada, where we actually have the veterans charter. So we actually have federal level level legislation protecting our rights and access to certain things. So, and that's a big part of what Apex wants to do as a company, like make no bones about it. We're a soon to be public drug development company that's running through the clinical pipeline to, you know, take a, a low dose synthetic uh, lead uh, drug candidate to a phase three and to, you know, eventually a den like all the other companies that are in the space are looking to do but we really do have a social focus on veterans and really highlighting the need for alternative therapies and again that's how i kind of you know linked up with spencer through um conversations and then you know linked up spencer with uh jesse over at heroic Heart so they could have the conversation as two nonprofits in the space one supporting access for psychedelics and one supporting access for psychedelics but for veterans and it's interesting because Heroic Hearts is they've they've branched out. Jesse has it and they have Heroic Hearts project in the United States. They have it in the UK and now they've applied for everything in Canada. And I know they're working on that. So when you see other nonprofits coming into this space, do you see that as an increased potential pressure on the governments in those countries that it's happening with? Like, because I do see a lot more nonprofits pop, popping up and they're really trying to get individuals access. I, I do. I, and I point to Vet Solutions and what Marcus and Amber are doing. The push that they put on with, uh, for, I think he's former Governor Rick Perry in Texas, and now it's state-level mandated uh, legislation that uh, they do work on uh, veterans with PTSDs uh, under that umbrella, specifically focusing on cannabis and psychedelics through the University of Baylor, Texas. 
So I think that that, and that's one of the reasons why I think that I think that you know the 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 interviews and the coverage that both that solutions and heroic hearts have got, whether it's just been in the industry and whether it's been at conferences, is fantastic because I think that especially in North America, like you'd be hard pressed to, despite whatever political leaning somebody has to say like you know do you support veterans like not wars not whatever like just do you support okay. veterans you like I'll take that Pepsi case challenge nine like 10 times out of 10 that they're, yeah. they're always going to be a majority of people that are going to have a strong uh, support and voice for veterans. And I think that it's useful uh, for the nonprofits to shine a light on veterans and the good that these psychedelic compounds are doing, whether that's, you know, uh, psychedelic assisted therapy done under MAPS protocol, or whether that's a traditional uh, Shippewa ayahuasca ceremony through uh, heroic hearts, you know, access is access, right? That's the, that's the only thing I'm worried about. It doesn't just, you know, it sounds funny for somebody from the C-suite from a drug development company in the pharma world to say, but I, you know, I, I would, it doesn't always have to be a, you know, press tab formulated pill. And I think in some cases for veterans, the group aspect of a traditional uh, ceremony specifically with ayahuasca, it, it, I think is more meaningful and can provide more therapeutic benefit. See, it's interesting that you say that too, because I wonder with Theracil getting the access to psilocybin, is that more of a medical setting type of use or is that individualized where you can have it at home, you can use it in a shamanistic setting? Because I do understand exactly what Aaron's saying, coming from that community and having sat with a Heroic Hearts um, group before, there is something that is 10 times more powerful in a shamanistic setting, in my personal opinion, when you're around like-minded individuals, when you, especially in the community, if you're in the community, a lot of times, depending on who you're around, what you say will make someone's face melt off. Now, if you put us in a certain group, no one has to gray man. Everyone can feel comfortable allowing themselves to ingest something that could bring out something out of their mouths that they didn't necessarily mean to say. And a lot of people do and are hesitant because they've been in special operations or they've been in covert units where they know they can't say certain things, but then ingesting something that, that might <laughs> make it slip. I mean, having groups like heroic hearts, providing, providing them with, you know, people that they can feel safe around at all times, because Jesse being an army ranger, you know, there is that understanding. So do you see benefit? Number one, do you see benefit to psilocybin being used in shamanistic settings more or less than, um, pharmaceutical settings or, yeah, we'll start with that because I've got a few questions. I'll type in and say that I I personally think that there's, you know, I, I look at things that are old, right? Like an example, I do stretching and the stretching I choose to do is, is yoga. And I, I learned some of that yoga and it's, you know, there's a reason that people have been doing these, this type of mindfulness meditation and stretches for thousands of years. It's like, it's evolved with us. And so when you think about how these substances have been used it's like you don't need to make something up and say this is my theory on how it's going to work well it's like look at what's been used for thousands of years that's probably the best one you know they didn't mm -hmm. keep using uh, techniques because they were their shit they used them because they worked really well and so allowing people the option to do it you know however is comfortable for them and in whichever way the healthcare practitioner thinks is best is what I think is best. And right now with the exemptions, you know, you can absolutely take your psilocybin and you can uh, do it with, you know, a practitioner who's been using, you know, the, uh, the shamanic principles from, from wherever, because there are many different, you know, shamanic practices, uh, 
across the world. Um, however, your healthcare practitioner should be there too, right? Keeping an eye on things, making sure you're going to be okay. It's responsible. Um, so I, I think allowing both options is always the answer. And, you know, there are people that are very opinionated that it has to be, you know, in a clinical setting. Uh, and there are other people who are saying it has to be, you know, or for it to be most effective, it, it needs to happen outside of the clinical setting. And, and these are not only healthcare practitioners and researchers with these varied opinions, but also patients with these varied opinions. Uh, but the opinions vary. They're different. Right. And again, allowing the individual to make that decision is important because we're healing that individual, right? It's their mind. And so if they're the one saying, I'm not doing this, right, in a clinic, uh, you know, above above a busy street, downtown Toronto or in Vancouver, yeah. like fucking listen to that person, right? It's their mind. We're trying to help uh, give them the right to go do it with their shamanic practitioner to go do it outside um, or with their medicine people. And it, it really, that's what it comes down to. Um, so, you know, there, I don't think there's any appropriating these medicines because they're medicine, right? It's for that person. Um, but that being said too, uh, you know, the, the ancient practices are highly effective for a reason. It's because they've evolved over thousands of years. And kind of to, to Spencer's point, like when my exemption gets approved here in the next couple of weeks, there's a good chance that I'm not going to take a macro dose. There's a good chance that I'll micro dose whatever product that I get. Only that product will then be a testis, you know, product that I'll know that's been created under conditions that, you know, I'm comfortable with consuming. So, you know, but I, I agree. I think the, the option of consuming a macro or flood dose to a micro dose to clinical setting to non-clinical setting, I think that should fall under the patients and the healthcare, uh, healthcare practitioners oversight. That's what Therosol's arguing for. And that's what I believe in too. If you have a physician's oversight, like what, what could be more normalizing to the process of undergoing psychedelic assisted therapy or access one of these medicines if it's under the oversight of a physician. Right. And I, and I agree. I think that's fantastic. I, on the other hand, am absolutely terrified of doing something that in a clinical setting that looks like a living nightmare to me. If I'm not in the woods, that there's no way there's a, there's something to the healing aspect of it that I, I lean towards more, but I think the most important takeaway is it should be the person's right to choose how they, how they want to ingest these, these life, I call them life-saving and life-altering, um, life-changing medicines, because they really do, I find, alter the mind in a, in a really beautiful way. For the majority of people that I know that have ever experienced it, that being said, everyone I've also spoken to has also had what they call a bad trip or a experience in which they they didn't expect to have. Um, and, and I think with psilocybin, you're going to get both of them. I think even once it's regulated and you can check the, you know, the chemical makeup, I think the, the brain and body are going to do what the brain and body are going to do with it. They're going to give you the experience that you need, not necessarily that you want, or they will alleviate anxieties through microdosing. It really depends on the level that they take at the time. Um, with heroic hearts, Jesse, and with you, Aaron, how is it that you two, so you two met when you were down at Wonder, was it Wonderland you were speaking at? When did Spencer and I meet? No, when, when did Jesse, when did Jesse and you meet? Oh, uh, Jesse and I met about two years ago. And that was literally, I uh, followed Heroic Hearts on IG, you know, and noticed what they were doing and sent a message 
saying, hey, how you doing? This is me. And would you like to chat? And Jesse and I had a conversation. And then that led uh, to me just uh, helping them get a foothold in uh, in Canada and get their charitable status and just, you know, provide, you know, be a barometer up here because, you know, UK culture, veteran culture is different than US and US is different than Canada and vice versa. So, you know, just play, just played, uh, you know, a, a good actor in the space to, to connect Miranda to other nonprofits or veteran organizations. See, that's what I, the reason I bring that up is because I think it's so important to acknowledge how this is all happening, because mo the majority of this movement, this progression in 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 psychedelics and psilocybin and and getting laws changed is really coming from within the community. And it's coming from with the in, it's coming from the individuals that want to only see healthy progression and they, and they understand because they've experienced it themselves and they know that the results are kind of undeniable. And it's almost like a, you're doing the world a disservice by not having those conversations and sharing those experiences because they are so life changing. And so I think it's always good to acknowledge that in this space, at least from the nonprofits that I've been able to see, it's taking veterans to change psychedelics. It's, it's, again, it's veterans, it's these special operators, it's these people that know how to outflank and win wars to come in and say, well, this is how you change it. Because I feel like we are really struggling on a government side, on the bureaucracy side in North America to really get a lot of things done. And, and it's, it's really getting worse in my opinion and not to be negative, but it is the ability to pass laws and move things forward. It takes a certain type of pressure and it takes a certain type of person to actually usher that forward. And I said this to Marcus when he was on with Amber, I said, of course it's taking, it's get a Navy SEAL that's gonna move it forward. Of course it's taking a Ranger to move it forward. Nobody else seems to have done this up to this point. Is is there a reason for this? Because I mean, these, these, these psychedelics have been around for so long. And I know that we have lost the right to have them due to, you know, the war on drugs and all of that yada yada lies. So is that the reason that this hasn't happened up to this point? Why, why now? I think that there's more clinical evidence coming out, like, you know, the FDA giving MDMA uh, breakthrough drug, or, you know, air quotations, miracle drug status in 2018, removing some of the restrictions on accessing to do research. I think, you know, the work that Compass is doing, the work that MAPS is doing, the work, you know, the work that nonprofit and very much for-profit companies are doing, like the cl clinical evidence is starting to mount up and it's becoming undeniable uh, that, you know, psilocybin is at least as effective as SRIs when it comes to depression. You know, so I, I think the fact that the data is undeniable mixed with the advocacy work that's happening in North America is a recipe for getting people's attention for it, right? If, if public opinion shifts in a country and in communities, then, you know, the, the collective opinion will shift to the positive. And I think that the majority of people, the, the, the polls that I've seen, especially in Canada, the majority of Canadian citizens are in favor for access to psychedelics, specifically when you're talking about treatment resistant conditions that Canadians suffer from. And, and I want to add too that I think to answer the question, like, why is it leading with veterans too? I think veterans understand something that a lot of Canadians and a lot of people across the world who are very comfortable don't. And that is that freedom isn't given. You've got to fight for it and you've always got to fight for it. Um, and I think the vets are very willing and happy to step up and, and realize that, that, you know, it's not like the government or some policy analyst is going to come around and go, hey, we should legalize psilocybin. Let's do that. And then put in all the work to make those policy changes. It's like, 
policy does not change easily. You got to fight for it. So if you want freedom, you've got to fight for it. Um, the freedom to choose your, 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 your drug, right. Or, or to take psilocybin, um, the freedom to make your own medical decisions like this, like this is, this is something that we need to fight for individually. And the, the access that Therosol got just on the conversation of, you know, how he can move things forward. We always talk about the forward momentum and, you know, forward looking what regulations and access could look like. But, you know, Therosol in August 2020, when they got those exemptions, like that was a, an historic event. Like that was a health minute, like that, that, that was you know, fairly unexpected that, that they would, that they would grant access. So I think that, you know, even in the, you know, less than two years since that decision has been made, I think that there has been forward momentum that, you know, should be counted as wins, but until there's a federally regulated medical access system for psilocybin regulations is, is, you know, is, is what I see as the best angle. Are you thinking regulations in the same, in the same steps and progression that we did with cannabis in Canada? That's exactly. So David Wood, who uh, I uh, work with and, and Spencer works with uh, through uh, Therosil, uh, David is a regulatory attorney and David is arguably one of the most knowledgeable psychedelics and cannabis regulatory attorneys in North America. Like he's, he's, uh, he's, he's been there, done that. So he helped Therosil draft the regulations. If you go on Therosil's website, you can actually download the proposed regulations that David would draft it uh, for access. And those regulations almost mirror the cannabis regulations that came into Canada in 2001. And in 2001, like the, the, a lot of people draw parallels between medical cannabis access and uh, psychedelics, but it would be a true parallel because prior to a federal system of access for medical cannabis in 2001, in the court case where, you know, Canadian citizens took the federal government to court, the Supreme Court agreed that it was a violation of their rights and that they will would have access to this. That's how regulations were created. Prior to that, Canadians were accessing medical cannabis through Section 56-1 sub-exemptions. It's, it's the same conversation over again to, you know, to, and to draw, again, the parallel from a medical cannabis access system to a, a psilocybin, I think makes sense. Like there was no mountain of evidence, you know, clinical evidence that made Health Canada as a regulator make that decision. It was that it was a, a human rights. It was an access issue. And it's the same issue for psilocybin. I think veterans are a great starting point to highlight it due to the fact that we do suffer at conditions at a, at a higher rate than civilian counterparts in Canada and in uh, the U.S. But I think that it, it, a break in the dam, like I think veterans should be the starting point just to highlight it to the Canadians, to the Canadian public who really does want this access to say that this is working in, you know, macro micro flood dose, clinical, non-clinical settings, and people are doing this. And if the federal government wants to talk about harm reduction when taking these substances, then make it legal and put regulations in place and make it so it has to be created under, you know, certain uh, conditions. Nobody's asking for a free pass here. You know, the people are out there willing to do the work, but the regulations are on Therosil's website for anybody that cares to look. Yeah, and I just want to highlight something that Aaron said there and, you know, a bit of a reasoning. Some people have criticized what we're doing with those regulations. I mean, that was put together with our lawyer and then a number of patients and healthcare practitioners. And we discussed, you know, all of the possible changes that we could make. And at the end of the day, we landed on, we want to keep it as close to the cannabis regulations as possible for the exact point that Aaron made is those, those choices weren't made because of some amount of research. They weren't made for any other reason 
then it was human right, right? It's human right to be able to grow your own cannabis and grow your own psilocybin. It's Canadian, you know, human right um, to make that a decision between you and your doctor. So we all agreed that, you know, the cannabis regulations even could be better and that our psilocybin regulations could be better. But as a perfect starting point and to avoid 20 years of trying to get to that, let's just start with regulations that mirror cannabis, uh, because we can absolutely say that, you know, these are the decisions made after 20 years of court cases. Uh, so let's just jump and start from there. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Um, and let's realize that any additional changes to be made to make them better can be made after that point. But for now, it's administratively easy. Uh, and there's going to be no doubt as to whether or not the same rights apply, you know, to cannabis and psilocybin. I'm gonna, gonna talk something through in my head. I've been thinking what you're you guys are giving me some information. So I'm just curious because okay, so we so we needed all the studies for cannabis to be legalized in Canada. You said this wasn't didn't it didn't happen because people had a, an abundance of research from top universities. It took people pushing to just get it done. Correct. I got that, right? So so then why do we need you? Because from the psilocybin standpoint, you're saying we need more clinical trials. We're getting more research. We're getting more science. Well, if the true meaning is that we just need to be able to, to give people access regardless of the science. I mean, if we didn't have the science behind cannabis, why did it matter that we we were able to just push it through because people wanted it? And why can't we just push it through now? Because it's the God given right instead of having to have all the science behind it. Do you guys get what I'm trying to say? Yes, that was, okay, a miscommunic that was a miscommunication on my part. So the context I was saying was, is that the majority of uh, the public in Canada is 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 for, you know, okay. access to uh, to psilocybin and that the clinical, you know, the positive clinical outcomes like those are published, like you can see that on Facebook now, right? Yeah. So that like the average citizen is going to be They're aware. Exactly. Take some uh, uh, take some of the, the stigma off of it. Okay. And, and I'll just add to that, you know, at this point in time, right, the clinical data only shows that a very narrow, narrow uh, subset of the population should have access to psilocybin, right? Only those who are severely treatment resistant, right, uh, who are being treated uh, because of certain diagnoses and with certain, you know, clinical protocols. So we're not claiming here that regulations, right, that legalize medical psilocybin would then be applied to all of Canada. We're saying it would then apply to, you know, the small group of Canadians, which is actually quite large. There's a huge amount of veterans and people with PTSD, mental uh, treatment resistant mental conditions and physical pain um, who would have access. But as clinical data then matured, then we could start expanding it um, right. to a point where, you know, the clinicians are comfortable prescribing or not. Uh, but again, it's just it's more of an argument against prohibition. Prohibition just doesn't work. It, it doesn't serve the people who, who need access. Right. So with um, <clears throat> what something you keep saying that I, I want to touch on is you keep saying treatment resistant individuals. So I understand what that means. And I think most of the listeners just they understand what it means. But why is it that we have to put people through all of these different types of treatments that we know are potentially harmful, addictive or dangerous? And we know that we know that we're sure on the data on that. Why do we have to run them through all of this and put them at risk when the majority of these individuals, if you gave them psilocybin, would not need to go? Like, why do they have to be deemed treatment um, that they, that the treatment doesn't work? Why do we have to run the gamut? That's a good question. And for many people, it's the doctors and healthcare professionals who are making this decision. And it's a risk analysis for them. It's a it's a matrix of trying to decide, you know, at which point. How far do I take this list of known 
pharmacological drugs uh, with known, you know, negative and positive, uh, you know, uh, side effects. Um, and at which point on this, really, it's a spectrum, right? The uh, psilocybin land. So at, at some point, right, some person's going to be deemed treatment resistant because, uh, you know, treatment resistant is, is a definition made up of, you know, persistent uh, feelings of anxiety, depression after a number of months and, and it, it fails are available clinical treatments. Um, but that's right, back to choice. It's always a decision at what point the doctor deems something a reasonable, you know, treatment. So we're not going to, you know, for example, we're, we, some person may opt not to choose electric shock therapy for something. Uh, and they can say, I became treatment resistant when I exhausted all of the options that me and my doctor wanted to try. No, we didn't try these other ones. We're not going to. That's not a decision for us. And we've luckily had a bit of help with that is some patients who are treatment resistant getting exemptions have tried only talk therapy because they don't want to take any drugs. And in Canada, if you don't want to take drugs, you can't, you know, no one's forcing you to. Um, and that's the way that, I don't know you know, about that. People, well, thankfully there may be some, it may, your life <laughs> might be harder, but we still don't ever, ever force people to take drugs, any of them. Um, so, you know, that's, what's kind of being made here is that these patients get to determine when they've tried enough, uh, possible treatments to combat their anxiety and depression. Um, and the healthcare practitioners get to decide too. And that's again, why when clinical data becomes more clear, right? If I'm saying if not when, but if psilocybin after, you know, extensive clinical trials shows that it's incredibly safe and effective at treating depression, I don't see why many people wouldn't choose one dose of psilocybin instead of trying to hop on a course of antidepressants or SSRIs that we know can have negative side effects. We're just not quite there for, you know, a majority of clinicians to make that decision, um, you know, uh, with, with enough, uh, um, yeah, just clinical just data. With enough, exactly. With enough clinical data, with enough clinical data. Yeah. Do, do you think there's an aspect of this? And again, this is me. Do you think there's an aspect of this, of, you know, we know that clinicians it's been proven. I'm not talking at a mass. It's been proven that clinicians have been paid to, to prescribe heavy pharmaceuticals over other options because it is, it is financially beneficial. Is there an aspect of this that you think is happening where people, it is just fear, it's just education? Or do you think that there's also a combination of there's individuals that are just getting more financial you know, benefit from prescribing SSRIs from Pfizer or whomever versus saying, hey, because we don't actually own, we don't own psilocybin, it's not something we, we can really give you finances for. So we're not even going to have or broach that conversation because there is no benefit to them. I mean, that's a good question. I can certainly tell you that without being like a massive pharmaceutical company, it's very difficult to get a drug approved with a DIN. Um, and this is part of the reason why psilocybin is not getting, you know, why we don't have psilocybin with a DIN is you have to be able to patent it um, in order to make money back for your shareholders. So it's difficult just at the beginning of the day to bring drugs that aren't patentable to market. Um, so there's one issue, there's one problem. Um, and then uh, along with that is, you know, who normally does drug education, who educates clinicians on new drugs? It's like the marketing team who created it. So yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult to make these available. And again, it's at the end of the day, it's like a, it's a system problem that we have. And it's not that I've got some genius solution for a better system. 
I'm just advocating that with this particular drug and this particular date and time, things are not working. We've got to have a workaround because this is a potentially miracle, you know, substance for some people. Uh, and the hoops and loops we've got to jump through to get them access is, is just absolutely ridiculous. Like two years and millions of dollars of lobbying and marketing and communications. It's, it's too much. And can you imagine what two million, two years and millions of dollars could have went into actual helping individuals instead of having to fight something that we should just never have to fight for at all? It's, it's wild to me to see where we're at and, and what we deem acceptable and unacceptable to put in individuals' bodies, especially the keyword being the individual. And so I would like to see that looked at more seriously. I think so many of us in the world would really like people to be able to make their own decisions. Unfortunately, we seem to give a lot of people power um, without really understanding what that power can prevent us from, from achieving when it comes to our own health. Aaron, you look like you got something to say there, my friend. No, no. I was just thinking like, as, as you were talking, I'm just like, I like, I like, it's healthy to show some civil disobedience, you know, like it, it, it's healthy for citizens to, to, to do that. So I know that that was just my thought as you were thinking about the decision-making process. And in Canada, like we, you know, we still live in a country where I'm able to do that, where Spencer's able to do that. I'm still able to say that I am going to access psilocybin. You know, access is not the question. Supply is now the question. Because when you look at an exemption, if I get an exemption, I immediately am going to contravene the criminal code and go and source it illicitly. If that was the, like, what, why do that? Why force patients to go to an illicit market? Why, why, why not actually, again, going to the point of this is going to happen anyway. So, you know, if that's going to be a little bit of my part of the civil disobedience, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And then nobody's shocked that it's coming from you either. I mean, everyone expects civil disobedience to come from the veteran community on some level, way, shape, and form. We're all a kind of a band of a different type of people. And we all seem to have that little bit of pushback and that A-type or whatever you want to call it. It seems like it's who's getting the job done, which is a beautiful thing. And I would expect nothing else from our community. And you're smiling because you know, I'm right, Aaron. And you're kind of smirking Spencer because you're like, yeah, it's kind of true. Well, I don't, I don't enjoy being told what to do, especially when it comes to consuming plant-based medicines. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not going to lie. It irks me. So when I had the, you know, when it, when I had the opportunity to meet Spencer and then move the conversation forward with a little bit of a veteran theme but overarchingly just pushing forward to Theracel's goal with regulations like I wasn't going to talk turn down the opportunity to run my mouth as much as I hate doing <laughs> it publicly no it's the best it's necessary see what happens when you yell real loud eventually people listen just wear a hat next time trust me it'll catch on <laughs> It's hilarious. I love it. I love seeing, I love seeing the conversation about it with you too, because it's so different when you're having legislation conversations, you're having conversations where, like you said, it's Aaron and I said this before, when you're talking about psilocybin, you're talking about laws and, and, and advocacy and, and, you know, people really just running their mouth about it, really trying to get people's minds to change. You're, you're, you're running, you're running the risk of coming off a certain way. And, and I think the most important thing to look at is what are you running the risk for? 
what's the risk reward factor? How many people are going to be helped by you saying and talking openly and, and not, you know, being concerned about the repercussions of your own self? Like, what are you really doing it for? What, who, how many people are you going to help? At the end of the day, this isn't for either of you to sit here and say, hey, we're trying to, you know, change the world in a, in a way that's going to harm individuals. We're just trying to sit here and have a calm conversation about why can't we have the right as a human being to eat a mushroom that grows in the ground? It's not really anything that I think, you know, needs to be demonized. I mean, both of you are very successful high functioning parts of society who I'm assuming pay your taxes and look after yourselves. I mean, you're, you're not angry people who are trying to force individuals to take something they don't want to take. You're just trying to give people the option and, and the rights and the education, because I think that's a big thing. People kind of overstep is you can want the right to have anything you want, whether it's good or bad, but if you're not really sure why you're taking what you're doing it for or how to do it, a lot of times that can be dangerous. And we had an outpouring um, We after we did the, the panel on Theracil, after we've done some other podcasts where I just kind of lay a kind of very open, like, yeah, guess what? Plant-based works. And I'll tell you all about it because it's not about being the veteran with the billboard that's screaming about it. It's about just talking about it and giving people the right to, in the space to talk about it. I think with you two, that the difference is you both come from either sides of the spectrum when when you're talking about this. You come from the legislative side and you've come from the side where it's undeniable to know that it works and it works well. And it's better to ask forgiveness than it is permission when it comes to your health, in my personal opinion. Take that for what you will, but it just is. Um, how do we move this forward though? So for, I know for you, for Aaron, you're working with, you know, Apex Labs, that's a different step. And for you, Theracil, so either of you go ahead and give me the, but how do we move this forward? You go, you go ahead, Spencer, you take the Theracil part. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so moving this forward, we've got to make it very, very clear what we're asking for and make the goal obtainable. Um, and that obtainable goal is medical regulations, which, you know, do not force any Canadian to access or use psilocybin. It's not about forcing, right? It's about giving people the right. And on the other side of rights, right? No one in this country or anywhere gets a right without a responsibility. So on the other side of the right to access psilocybin is the responsibility, right? Of making wise decisions. And that goes for the patient and the doctor. And that's what's being asked for here. You mean, I mean, you wonder like, are we doing this? Is it right? Uh, you know, my subsample of who this is helping is the, is the patients that, that we're supporting. And that's why we're a patient-centered organization is I'm not putting any prescription on any other Canadian other than the people who are coming to Theracil and saying, we really, really need help, right? We're, I, I'm struggling here. I really want access to psilocybin. Um, and even then, we're not claiming that this is going to work, but we're giving people the right and responsibility to take psilocybin to see if it does. And at the end of the day, um, and we're doing research here, it's why research is you know, a responsibility that we've taken. It's why professional and, and uh, public education is a responsibility that our organization has taken, right? Access, if we were just an access organization, it'd be irresponsible. But all these other things we're doing is to make sure that patients are getting treatment from trained professionals that we're telling the public of the limitations. We're not just saying this is for everyone. And then we're backing up what we're doing with research um, so that we can say to the government, either this worked or it didn't work at all, right? You gave access to 60 patients and all of them are worse off. That's not what's happening at all. 
that's not at all what's happening. I'm happy to be able to say that with confidence and it will come out when our research is published exactly who's getting helped and who's not. Um, but we'll never pretend to say that this is 100% effective. Um, so, you know, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make medical policy that allows for more research, more training, more educated uh, citizens and, and patients who are able to get access so that their only decision isn't like, you know, medical assistance in dying or drugs that aren't working. It's they can try a mushroom one time and it may be, may be a cure to their physical and or, or psychological pain. Uh, that's who we're talking about here. And I think just being very clear in what we're saying, what our communications are, um, is what helps us protect, you know, uh, the Canadians and, and other people out there who, who could could be harmed by these substances. Aaron, talk now. <laughs> Apex on the other side, like we're a drug development company. So we're focused on the clinical research. We're focused on a phase clinical pipeline. So we're going to this in the next coming weeks and months, we're going to run a phase two a trial on a low dose synthetic drug product. Our lead drug product is Apex-002. So it's going to be a micro uh, dose product. And the uh, condition that we're focusing on is PTSD uh, with comorb a comorbid diagnosis of treatment resistant depression in the Canadian veteran community. So we have access to the veteran patients. There's veterans out there that want to go through the clinical pipeline and actually go through that route. And that's, you know, I, I, the conversation for Apex is most definitely a clinical conversation and pulling the research from the trials that we do. But we also wholeheartedly and always have supported Theracil and their push to regulations because I think with regulations will come broader access to veterans for different products <clears throat> because veterans remain an anomaly in Canada, again, with medical cannabis, where we have insurer coverage at $8.50 per gram for our, you know, dried flour, edibles, sublinguals, tinctures, whatever. So if, you know, if the Canadian government and Health Canada as a regulator is comfortable with me taking a, you know, dried flour product and shipping to, that to my house pre-drug identification number and mountain of, you know, peer-reviewed data, then why not the same with uh, fruiting bodies or, or synthetic, synthetic product? or a biosynthetic product or whatever the patients and the physician are comfortable with in that conversation. So Apex is, uh, like I said, most definitely a drug development company focused on a clinical pipeline, but we want to push forward medical access to, in Canada with a focus on veteran patients for sure. I, I still, you guys, you guys make it sound, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a mushroom. Why? I just, I, I know there's so many rules and laws around it. It just, it boggles my mind for, for the people who, who don't understand exactly what psilocybin is and how it works. Can either of you speak to that enough for the listener to, to really understand why I'm so frustrated with people not being able to use this mushroom, <laughs> please? I'm a few PhDs short, but I'm sure Spencer could talk about the, the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin. I know he's the smart one in the room here. No, oh, and it's ineffable, like the, the experience of, of psilocybin. It's so hard to explain, and I'm sure that it's different for every person who takes it, but I'll try my best to answer your question. I believe in you, Spencer. Is, here's a substance that changes or alters your, your perception. Some people say it, it alters consciousness. Others say it expands consciousness. Uh, truth is, nobody knows exactly what it does. 
And if they say they do, they're probably lying to you because there's a process happening to the brain, which is the most complex thing in the entire, like known thing in the, in the solar system. Like it's, it's so amazing. The human brain, we don't understand it. Um, now I can, again, only speak from what myself has, have experienced and what other patients have. Um, and for many of them, it's been similar, uh, to dreams. It's been similar to, um, you know, alcohol or other drugs like cannabis. Um, but it's also been different. And what they're reporting is it was an amazing spiritual awakening, right? Uh, it was awe-inspiring. For others, it was terrifying. They saw a demon or a dragon um, or, or someone who had hurt them once in the past. Um, and that's why we call them sometimes hallucinations. But it, in every instance, uh, you know, these people are under medical supervision, but I'm going to try and get away from that and focus just on the fact that it's a mushroom, right? It's, it's just doing something. It's changing, uh, your mind, right. The, the, the way you're thinking and perceiving, um, and it's doing that for many of these for, for a number of hours. And for sure, there's some one-offs, you know, there's stories of people who have looked at the sun or jumped out a window. Um, but you know, I'm sure the stories are much worse for what people have done on high doses of alcohol or other substances. Um, so it, it is, I, I do share, you know, your frustration. It's like, why the hell are these things illegal in the first place? Um, and the truth is, and I've asked for it many times, you know, where's the data, right? Health Canada, I've asked the UN, you just point me to any information showing how dangerous okay. these substances are. Nothing. I know that I was joking around with David Nutt on, on his podcast, the drug science, we were talking about the same thing for cannabis and the UN said they lost the papers. So they didn't even have any papers that, that were explaining the dangers of, of cannabis. So what? that's what we're working with here. And, you know, in all honesty, it seems to be the counterculture that started with, you know, Timothy Leary asking people to, you know, uh, you know, tune out. Um, so it seems like it was political and it seems like it is still political. And at the end of the day, it's, it just ignores what, what people need. You know, it's, it's an anti-humanist policy, as far as I can tell. Yeah. The reason I just, I, I get so frustrated and I know people are like, well, why don't you just learn the science? I'm like, I do learn the science, but it's still, I can't wrap my brain around it because having had psychedelic experiences to the limited amount that I have, but trust me, I plan on hitting those like a freight train this year. I am trying to find something in myself within myself and they've allowed me to do so. They've allowed me to find a calmer side. They've allowed me to, to, take the noise down. They've allowed my brain to see things that they didn't used to see. And because the brain was stuck so much in fight or flight that I couldn't see past, you know, the day or the, the, whatever was happening to me, it was so intense. And when you've experienced any sort of psychedelic awakening or, or spiritual awakening or whatever you want to deem it as it is, it is life-changing and it can't, it cannot be explained. Like you said, it's really hard to articulate because everyone has their individual experience. But at the end of the day, the one thing that we can all agree on is that it does change something. And I, I'd be curious to start to see scans. And I know that, you know, so many universities are studying, you know, the brain while individuals, they go into the MR, they go into these, these machines and we can see the brain changing and things happening in ways that we've never seen before. But what I, what I'm, I'm most, you know, frustrated about is 
the lack of evidence proving that it is dangerous, the lack of, of research proving that this shouldn't be explored, the lack of, 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 like you said, how does the UN just lose a document that is the, you know, the reason so many people are in prison for life. There is no, there's no reason for this. And it, it does make me put on that conspiratorial hat and go, like why there's got to there's got to be more there has to be more to this because it doesn't logically for someone who's not even considered to be that intelligent from a medical standpoint it doesn't make sense and it does anger me but i do know that people are are changing they are they are feeling lighter after this and that's why when i see you advocating for just therapeutic use under you know for individuals that are, are are close to death, that are that are needing assisted, you know, suicide or are needing assisted medical um, treatments that are, you know, you know, the chances of them surviving it or or going through chemotherapy and things like that. I I, I wonder what it alleviates in those people. And maybe I need to ask those individuals because people that are so close to life, they say it it alleviates the the anxiety of death. It'll it it takes that away. And I and I wonder what it does for them. I want them to, I want someone to articulate that to me because it seems like it's so profound. I just, go ahead. Like all all I can say again is my personal beliefs, right? Yeah. And share like what some of those people have seen is like those people have seen God, a lot of them, right? They've seen, they've seen death and they realize they're not afraid of it. So for some people it's fear for other people, it's, you know, and it, it sounds hokey pokey. Um, You know, many people don't understand it. And, as you know, a collective society, we've definitely moved away from religion and spirituality over the past couple, you know, couple generations. Um, but it seems that many of the people who are taking psilocybin, not all, are reporting mystical experiences, something akin to you know, uh, you know, a religious experience or a spiritual one. Um, and that's like the human condition: is believing in something, having some amount of belief so that death isn't scary, uh, so that there's a reason why you're doing things. And again, it's just my personal opinion is I think everyone has to believe in something because if you don't believe in anything, then like, you know, what's the purpose uh, of everything? And so I really think that when they report back that they're mystical and awe-inspiring, it's like, maybe that's the only medication we need. And I would, I would argue you're right. I think that's very true. I often say in a joking fashion, because I would never have this much access to it, but I would love to dose a population because I really think, no, I'm not kidding. I'm trying to say it in a serious manner. Shut up, Spencer. I think if we gave this to a certain age group and above, barring obviously we're weeding out the people we know it's not healthy for who already have predisposed, you know, psychological issues, i.e. schizophrenia, bipolar, those types of things. Not saying them, Spencer. I'm saying everyone else. If we were like, just a microdose, just for a week, give it a go. Because the testing that is going to be done, explain, explain what a clinical test looks like for something like psilocybin. Because again, we don't understand the brain. We don't understand how it's changing it, but we are doing clinical trials. So what do those look like then? 
it would depend on the company. Some companies are focusing on a macro or a flood dose with a psychedelic assisted therapy. Some are focusing on a low or subperceptual or a micro dose of the psychedelic, which doesn't require the psychedelic assisted therapy. So it would depend on the company, their clinical development protocols and what indication they were going after. Are you looking at alcohol use disorder? Are you looking at chronic pain? Are you looking at depression treatment, resistant depression, something with a comorbid diagnosis. So there's, it's, it's a more nuanced conversation, but the, the, it runs the gamut and it's not just psilocybin. There's MDMA and, uh, you know, LSD is being dis, dis, uh, explored in Ibogaine. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, observational and clinical work happening. So it, it would depend on the company and it would depend on what they were trying to focus on that the psychedelic compound would have the perceived uh, therapeutic benefit. And these clinical trials that are being done, these are not being done. So everything that's being done, say psilocybin, for example, if the clinical trial is being run on psilocybin, it's being done in a medical setting, correct? Yes, it's done. It's done at a, at a clinical trial site. Because the reason I bring that up is when we look at things like, I think the study was around cocaine and rat use. And we saw, you know, the, the study was like rats in a, in a clinical setting, they would, they would, they would use it till they die. Like that is just the way, but then when you gave it to them out in a real setting in real world application, they have no, no bother for it. No, no use for it. And, and they were studying drugs based off of this and, and saying, you know, X, Y, and Z based off of this research. So I wonder, you know, if, if that'll have an effect on clinical trials within psilocybin, because it is in a medical set. Do you get what I'm saying? That set and setting is really, really really important. It, it is. And there's, you know, and there's room for uh, observational studies as well, right? So, you know, groups like Heroic Arts and the work that they're doing with the Imperial College of London and the work that uh, Dr. K. Pate did with traumatic brain injury and the psilocybin's uh, effect. So observational studies are different from clinical trials. So, and, and there is more of that research happening, both clinical and non-clinical work. So I think in, you know, in, in the next little while, we're going to cover the gamut from micro to macro to MDMA, to LSD, to psilocybin, and everything in between. Will observational studies hold as much weight as clinical when it comes to moving legislation forward or be anywhere beneficial? I'm hesitant to answer that question because that's not my area of expertise, but observational, like clinical trial, like a, um, a clinical trial is seen as the gold standard in clinical research. So if you, you know, if you get a double-blinded, peer-reviewed, randomized control trial, that right there is what most uh, clinicians and people in the research world want to look at as the, you know, the, the gold standard. And then there's everything in between from observational uh, studies to anecdotal uh, evidence. Like if you have several hundred veterans coming together with a group like Theracell and saying, I am taking, you know, a, a macro and a microdose psilocybin product, and it's having these effects on my post-traumatic stress, which in itself is a diagnosis that encompasses my sleep loss and anxiety and depression, treatment resistance or otherwise, and it's having this great effect, like you don't need to run a clinical trial to push legislation. You know, the, the clinical trials that Apex uh, is running would be far less important in the conversation with how we're supporting Theracell and the fact that we just know that there's veterans specifically out there consuming psychedelics in a low dose, and they're seeing a great benefit from it. 
you know, so the, 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 the legislation, I don't think, well, I'm not a regulatory expert, but I don't think the legislation is going to get pushed forward, uh, not in time for the groups that we're looking at by clinical trials. Clinical trial pipelines are years and years uh, okay. long. So I would say that the observational studies that groups like Heroic Hearts are doing and the work that they're going to be doing in Jamaica and the work that they're going to be doing with Canadian, U.S. and U.K. vets, I think that's going to be important for the, uh, the advocacy portion of this conversation. Well, that's because that's why I brought it up, because I know how long clinical studies actually take. I understand, but we don't really have time for vets. I'm speaking on vets in the communities in specific. Uh, We don't really have time for a few years to go by for the clinicals to push the actual legislation. So that's why I wondered, like the the, you know, we understand the legitimacy of observational and and things like that. But how I'm meaning, you know, I wanted to know, like, how useful is that? Because I do understand that heroic hearts, when you go to do a program with them or sit with them at, at, at any point, you have a ton of questions to answer. You answer before you answer after you do reintegration. There's there's so much more to it than people see. It's not going to sit in a weekend or, or taking something for a little bit and then just letting them know how you're doing. Like there's legitimized questions that get asked throughout the process so that they can track the, the progression of how you're doing afterwards, during, and before. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of things that those organizations are doing that are really responsible as well. There is definitely the question of using psychedelics coupled with SSRIs and the possible dangers that those come with, you know, serotonin reuptake syndrome. And so there is education around that too, which I, I really do want to acknowledge because I think a lot of people see these organizations doing treatments like this and they think, oh, well, they just sent a vet to go. There was no, is there any research behind it? Like we don't, because a lot of the stuff that- It's just getting blasted in the jungle in Peru on ayahuasca. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. And, and there's that's nothing what I wrong think. with that either. If that, no. If, like, yeah. Like but, if it, Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, you know, talking about routes of access and the like, you know, if, if that's what a veteran wants to do, that that's fantastic. But you're right. Heroic Hearts is an organization that's responsible about the protocols and the integration that they do and, you know, the out clearance that they do. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been speaking with Jesse on and off about this for about a year and a half. But when I can find the time, my the next psychedelic experience is from a macro perspective that I want to take part in is the traditional ayahuasca ceremony whether it's in peru or whether it's in costa rica or wherever but i i really want to undergo uh that uh, that macro experience and i continue to you know uh microdose uh psilocybin and get great benefit coupled with other things like breath work and meditation and staying physically active like like i said there's there's no one miracle cure but yeah access access and always on floor and I like that you acknowledge the the real importance of adding other things to psychedelic assisted therapies. I think it's really important to acknowledge that they are not something that you sit, you take, and then you go eat McDonald's and then you drink beer all night. They, these are something that like you have to have, a, you need to be working on your lifestyle, acknowledging that physical fitness has a massive implications on depression is, is a big part of the conversation. What you put in, in your body, the food you put in your body, the the, the liquid you put in your body, everything that you do on a daily basis goes towards healing. And if it's not, then you shouldn't, in my opinion, just be exploring psychedelics as an option. I think that you need to look at lifestyle and the brain and the way that we are, the mind-body connection as a whole, especially in the veteran community, because so many of our, of our, our members are or were at some point super 
pretty fit individuals enough, at least to pass certain tests. We were on a certain track that you needed to perform or be able to perform with. And so there's also the, you know, the conversation of you're bringing in these veterans that maybe are suffering from PTSD or PTS or complex or whatever, whatever they've been diagnosed with, um, after or during their military career, you're seeing them come out and there isn't really an important conversation or a pressing conversation on your physical fitness, what you're doing outside of it, what you're eating, your lifestyle habits. And they just go quick. How do I get the next big thing? So they jump on the psychedelic train and they don't have maybe the results that we know they could have. So how do you, how do you, what's the word I'm looking for? How do you, um, uh, hold on, it's coming. And this is another thing. <laughs> Brains, they're, uh, after a lot of concussions, they're, they're a struggle sometimes. And, and I know with TBIs using psilocybin and other psychedelics have helped significantly with that. That being said, I can't forget, remember my words while I'm saying it. Um, but how do you, how do you really look at that? How do you deal with that? How, how do you put that into account when you're doing clinical trials or you're doing, uh, other trials when you're talking about psychedelics and maybe individuals that are not healthy otherwise? Speaking specifically of clinical trials, Apex uh, brought together a world-class team of uh, PhDs and people with experience in phase clinical pipelines and experience with psychedelic compounds and doing research. So we took that into account. Our, our protocols are specifically designed around veteran patients with several key MDs, PhDs, and psychiatrists that have intimate experience with the veteran population in Canada. So we utilize them as key opinion leaders when we were doing our clinical uh development okay yeah because i just think all of those things have a huge factor right in 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 the way they're going to be afterwards how that's going to continue to benefit their lives you know you can only do so much if someone chooses to eat unhealthy add other things into their life you're kind of it, it worries me with with trials like that because everybody is so different in what they choose to do with their lifestyle and i'm just so hopeful for the research in psychedelics and i'm so hopeful for the progression i would hate to see any sort of results be somewhat negative because somebody was you know unhealthy on 99% of everything and then they didn't get quite what they were looking for with, with the psychedelic assisted therapy. It's just, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Just, I mean, I don't know, Spencer, if you have anything to say or speak on that, because I know for you, like you said, it's access for you. It's, it's not so much that, but do you, do you see in your, in your patients in the individuals that you, you know, I guess your patients, the people that you're advocating on behalf of, do you see a, uh, a correlation with individuals who are healthy doing better. I mean, who are, because I guess you're really looking for compassionate use, depending on when you have individuals like Aaron, say come through who do breath work, who do yoga, who watch what they eat, who are, you know, really healthy. Otherwise, do you see a better result with individuals like that? Or do you, are you seeing individuals who are struggling with their weight, struggling with other things and being physically fit? Do you see them getting the same benefits? Again, like I, I don't have all of the data in front of me and it would be great if we had our observational data. So here's an instance where observational data would be great because we'd mm -hmm. be able to answer this with a bit more clarity. But from what I've seen, everybody seems to benefit from it. Um, and it seems that those types that you're talking about, like the types that are already doing a lot of work are just more open, more knowledgeable and willing to you know, take more steps. And uh, certainly some of the practices uh, that, they've, that they've learned probably got them to the point where they're already interested in trying to take psilocybin. 
um, whereas some of the other folks were instead referred to by family members and doctors. Um, but in all cases, I mean, that's the nice thing about psilocybin is it doesn't seem to discriminate at all. Um, and it will help people. Uh, and many of the people that it's helped, um, you know, became a little more focused on, on their eating, on their lifestyle, on, on meditation, um, because they saw the power of, of, of that exact type of work that they were doing with their practitioner. Um, so it almost, it's like a cultural thing, right? It's like the people who are taking psychedelics are often people who are also meditating and have healthier, you know, mental, um, uh, you know, psyches. And interestingly enough, I could point back to, there have been studies, you said you wanted to dose a population Well, you could just look at a subset of a population who has been taking psychedelics. And from some of the research that's been done, it shows that they have lower tendencies of, uh, of mental illness. Um, Again, is that the psychedelics or are those just, you know, people who are doing a lot of other work and, and are also taking psychedelics? We don't know because our research isn't that, isn't deep enough to make a, a to, to draw any correlations or, or draw any conclusive, um, you know, correlation between the use of psilocybin versus their other lifestyle practices. Uh, so I don't, to answer your question very simply, I don't think it, I don't think the medicine discriminates. I think everybody seems to see the benefits from it. I think that's important to acknowledge, right? Because there is that understanding that sometimes certain certain things that you ingest in your body, they just, they can make you worse. Like you said, people use alcohol as a coping mechanism, but that often just leads to worse and worse behavior, you know, depending on what you decide to put into your body. If you're a heavy drinker, that often comes with greasy food that also comes with unhealthy sleep habits. Like there's a, there's just correlation a lot of times with other things that just aren't beneficial or, or productive in the body. But it's like, I like that you acknowledge that like, Hey, this is not a one size fit all for everyone, but it also doesn't discriminate against any discriminate discriminates against anyone. And I think that's super, super important to highlight because I, I really want people to see psychedelics as an option or as a tool if it is deemed right for you. And I think when you talk about it in a way that it's not something that, hmm, that just, like you said, it doesn't discriminate and it can help and heal all. I'm not saying children. I'm saying above age adults, it can help and heal all regardless of your status. And then at some points, like you said, I've seen individuals who have used psychedelics and turn their life around completely. Some of the most unhealthy people, like that literally drank bottles of whiskey a night who ate like shit, who just didn't move at all. There was this awakening where they just were like, yep, okay, I need to do better. And it gives them that opportunity to then do better. And I think that's what's really fantastic about it. For you, Aaron, how do you see the next little bit going here? You're saying you're moving into a clinical trial. Can you speak on that at all? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, uh, Apex will run the phase two clinical trial uh, from, we just submitted a um, CTA or a clinical trials application to Health Canada. And now Health Canada has a certain time period to respond with a no objection letter. So we're going to wait for the no objection letter. And that'll happen within the next three weeks or so. When the no objection letter comes in, we will start our clinical trial. And then that will run probably into the summer. And then uh, we'll end that clinical trial and uh, we'll analyze the data and do a few other things. And then we'll move on to a phase 2B trial and uh, continue on, which is with a large, larger uh, set, section 
population of patients uh, suffering from uh, the conditions and uh, and etc. But that's what uh, that's what Apex is up to. And with uh, with Therasol, um, I think that a a group or a class exemption focused on veterans would be a fantastic next step. And uh, anything else that uh, Spencer needs help with uh, when it comes to Apex or myself or the other executives over at the company, we 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 very like it's not just hyperbole. Like we we very strongly believe uh, in what Therasol is doing as a as a company. So whether it's a donation or whether it's horsepower and bandwidth from our executive or our advisory board, like we are uh, we're in the conversation for the long haul with Therasol. For Therasol, what's what's happening next? Because with the, I think you said it was 150 people who were just blanket denied. You you kind of said something at the beginning where you know they put themselves in a position here. The government has. So exactly, how do we see Therasol progressing in the next in this next 12 months? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Health Canada has has now set a time limit on things. Right, they can't just endlessly go on ignoring pract- uh, practitioners and patients. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to do what always works. Um, we're going to, we've essentially given the uh, government an ultimatum. And that is if, if you don't grant the exemptions, we're going to go to court because we know what the rights of Canadians are. And if you're not going to honor them, we're going to fight for those rights. Uh, so like, that's why I'm optimistic is I know what the rights of Canadians are, right? We have all of these, it's the same rights that apply to cannabis and medical assistance and dying. Um, they all apply to, psil- to psilocybin, and I'm just glad that we get to push them forward. Um, and this is a big opportunity for us to all, you know, come together and unite. And we've got, you know, yes, 150 healthcare practitioners who are about to be denied their exemptions. But I, I try to be very clear about this. This is not about them. This is about patients, because, you know, the minister and Health Canada can make these decisions, but there will be consequences to any decisions. And the consequences is not just going to be 130 or 150 healthcare practitioners who are pissed off. It's going to be 1500 patients who are waiting in our wait list for trained healthcare practitioners to help them, right? Who are now going to be blocked from getting access. Uh, it's going to be all of the patients who have already gotten access who want to stand up and fight for their, their friends, their peers. And it's going to be the other thousand healthcare practitioners also wanting to get into our training program. So just in our immediate circle, right? That's over 2,500 Canadians who are going to be absolutely outraged at this decision uh, if it goes through. And if that's the case, uh, we're going to fundraise for court and we're going to push forward a judicial review and if necessary, a charter challenge. Uh, And we've set the stage. uh, And if it comes to it, you know, hopefully we'll be able to say to the judge, well, what's the solution? How about these medical regulations that we put in place, you know, over a year ago uh, that the government's been ignoring, right? Why not those? This is the solution. Because we've got more, this is this is not just about those healthcare practitioners, right? We, we're going to get the patients joining who have been waiting, all of the other healthcare practitioners who want a resolution. So, for me, the threat of court is absolutely real. We've got a legal team working on this already, so it's already moving. Uh, it would be great if the government at any time would step in, Minister uh, Johnny Duclos, and just grant these exemptions and start pushing forward regulations, as it would save a lot of uh, taxpayer dollars not having to. Uh, to fight against, uh, you know, against such a foolish thing as medical access. Have you ever been able to have this conversation on any of the media outlets in Canada? Uh, yeah, a couple of them, and and they've been they've been interested. 
Um, it's certainly not their priority right right now to, to focus on this. And, and I just get it. There are a lot of other issues in Canada at the moment. Um, but the nice thing is, is like whenever this does get out to people, um, it's always very well taken and, and everyone understands exactly what the issue is. And to this day still, uh, you know, I can I think I can count on two fingers the amount of doctors or people who have been like, this is totally a bad idea. There's just no one that, that thinks this is going to be the end of the world, uh, which is very encouraging. So you see, so for the next little bit, you see this going through. How long does government have before they have to respond for you to go to court? Seven days. So in oh, days, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought I was thinking this was months. Hold on. What? In seven days, the government's going to be making a decision. Um, they, so I said two weeks ago or a week ago, right? They yep. gave us 14 days. They said, we're going to uh, deny these exemptions in 14 days. And I got together with all of the healthcare practitioners and the legal team. And we said, okay, well, we've got something for you too. Within 14 days, we don't get these exemptions granted. We're going to be taking you to court, uh, which is what we've got to do. You know, we, when, when there's a, when it's denied, um, you've got to think 30 days to file a judicial review. So in seven days, we will know if we're going to court and we should be filing for court within the next 30 days after that. Uh, but in seven days is the answer. Like that's when we'll know. That's when we'll really be kicking off the fundraiser uh, and when okay. we're going to be uh, either going to court or training healthcare practitioners. And, you know, it's in every Canadian's best interest that we're not wasting time in court. We should be training doctors and therapists. Yeah, I, I agree. I think obviously the right the right and just way to handle this is to just give human beings the right to do what they want with their body and then train properly. So then there doesn't need to be hundreds and thousands of lawsuits and billions of dollars issued out to people. If we just took a second and did this properly, trained people properly, researched it properly. Could you imagine how awesome life could be? I think having the right to just do what you want with your body should always come first and foremost. I love that you're not rolling over. I love that you are issuing them back a challenge. And uh, selfishly, I want to see, I want to see you go to court and drag them through the mud. Selfishly, I want them to learn a lesson that you cannot do this to human beings in Canada. They should have the right. Period. End of conversation. If it doesn't affect you, leave it alone. Stay out of it. Let people learn and educate, be better and move forward in society. I obviously don't think that should happen. I think you should get the right period right off the bat. But selfishly, uh, for my entertainment, I would like to see that happen because I would like to see people realize that there are tons of things that can be done to help you. And sometimes them saying no to you makes you louder. It makes other people see the fight and take it personally. Yeah. And, and in a way, it's like we're not even fighting for any rights or anything. It's like we're just fighting apathy and ignorance. Right? It's like we know what the rights are. We know what it's going to be in the end. Uh, the fact is, is just, just no one's moving. No one's doing anything, showing no interest in helping these people. So that's what we're fighting. It, my God, it's crazy. I never thought in this, you know, 2022, because this two years has been a blur, but I never thought we would be at the point where you know, we needed to fight so hard for so many freedoms that we should just, which we do have, we, we have a, this piece of paper. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's like a weird menu size. It's kind of on a weird, it's not quite like the Americans. We were kind of like, let's make it menu size and real tiny print and tiny paragraphs. It doesn't, I don't understand who thought that through, but regardless, we have it, it exists and we need to stop pretending like it doesn't every single thing in there 
states exactly what you're saying. We have these rights. We shouldn't even have to fight you for this, but we will. We'll use taxpayer dollars. We'll show you the true colors of humans. We'll do that. That's fine. We're not afraid to do that. And I can tell you right now, every single one of my listeners will be doing the same for you because they know what you're doing is true and right. And it's healing and it's undeniable. And you, Aaron, will deal with you. I mean, you're, you're acceptable. You're acceptable. You're cool to be loud and, and rave about it and use your voice. And I'm glad that Spencer found you to do that and gave you that platform to say, hey, this is not cool. I'm going to keep doing it until you give me my legal rights to do it. I'm glad that both of you two have paired up. I think you're a you're an odd pairing and one of the best pairings that we've got moving forward in Canada. And I think that you guys are going to show so many other people that it's okay to fight for their rights. It's okay to fight for their, you know, the, the right to use a mushroom to heal themselves. I think the world would be better if we had more people willing to fight the way that you two are. And I think the awakening is coming. It's slow, but it's coming and it's happening right now. And the movement it's here. And I think you can no longer fight it. Either get on board or get out of the way because this is going to happen whether you like it or not. Humans have the rights to do what they want with their body. And I'm just glad that you two have seen that and are not, not willing to turn a blind eye like so many others are. So high five to either of you because that's amazing work. So thank you. What's thank your, you, Kelsey. What's your face doing over there, Aaron? Your face is doing something. It was almost like a smile, a smirk. Almost. I don't know. Almost, but not quite. So is there anything else that we've missed? Like, I want to know, Thera, so where do people find the space to donate, fundraise, give legal, whatever they can give towards the fight, towards getting this? What can they do? How can they do that? Who do they contact? Yeah, so they can just come to therasil.ca. Um, and we always get, you know, people are always criticizing your name, Thera as in therapeutic. It drives so, me nuts. <laughs> With a P, yeah, with a P, like psilocybin. Uh, and, you know, hindsight's 2020, probably should have chosen an easier name, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, head to therasil.ca, and we're going to be launching a number of different fundraisers as, you know, I, I'm the first one to criticize, you know, organizations that just fundraise for the sake of fundraising. Um, and we're trying to be very deliberate with what our, our fundraising is doing. So, like, we're going to be fundraising for court. And this is helping individual people go to court and we'll be very transparent with the court costs. We'll be fundraising for more patient intake. So we have a nurse who does all of the intake, supports these patients, puts together their exemptions, um, and then puts them in front of the, the minister. And that's incredibly important. And then we've got like a researcher who does research, Holly does communication. So we'll be making our fundraising as transparent as possible and showing what these people are doing, what they're, what they've done in the past, how effective it's been. Um, because sometimes, you know, uh, the money doesn't go right to the patient, but in other times it does. So that's what we'll be doing. That's what we need more than ever. We're, you know, publicly funded. Uh, we do get a bit of funding from training, but we're reinvesting that all into the program because we've got a huge deficit of trained clinicians right now in Canada. So we're always looking for support um, and would love any help we can get from any of your listeners or anyone else out there that they think might be interested in wanting to donate. Aaron? What are you doing with your life and how do people find out about it? Oh, I will be concentrating on the strategy and clinic de clinical development uh, for Apex and uh, helping out there. So when and where needed. So simple. Just no links, nothing. Just, nope. you know what? If you want to find Aaron Victory, don't because he doesn't want you to. Correct. 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 <laughs>
Nobody, nobody's shocked here, man. No one's shocked again. I love it. I love it so much. Is there anything that I've missed that we need to be like shoving down people's throats? Cause this is seven days. This is Feb 8th. So we're going to hear pretty soon, but is there anything else that people need to know that is really important in moving this forward? I would just simply say that there, you know, there's a time crunch here, right? Where we've got pretty much an opening here, right? This is, this is the 11th hour, right? We get to determine what's going to happen with the patients and healthcare practitioners who have been fighting for psilocybin access for far more than two years. I mean, that's how long we've been doing this, but there have been people fighting far beyond that. So we're coming down here to the 11th hour. There's going to be a a charter challenge, a constitutional challenge uh, and a major decision. And once the Minister of Health starts approving right, uh, exemptions for Aaron uh, and for healthcare practitioners, um, right, that it's not going to be a challenge anymore, right? That what what one veteran gets, all veterans gets or get, <laughs> and the same applies to healthcare practitioners too. So when these exemptions go through, we're not going to be fighting about whether or not exemptions should be granted. Uh, it'll be how dare the Canadian government try to discriminate based on mental and physical disability. You're speaking about that menu charter, that's charter section 15 rights. They're not allowed to do that. Um, So this is it. It's all coming down to the wire here. Um, And and I'm incredibly optimistic, as you can maybe hear and see. Um, And all we need is, you know, a, a bit of support to make sure that we can execute well in the next month. I love it. I'm so glad that everyone got to hear it from you guys because... This has been enlightening, I know, for so many, and it will be and continues to be. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Stick with me. Everyone else, we'll send you all the links. Put them in the uh, paragraphs. Make sure that you know how to go support everyone. Don't look for Aaron. He doesn't exist. Theracell does, very much so, and they're going to keep fighting for Canadians' rights. And then I'm sure doing the work that they're doing, they're going to end up being the ones who spearhead the movement pretty much anywhere else because it seems like it's taking Canada and Canadians to get it done. So thank you guys so much for staying on the show. And being here with us. We'll talk to you all next week.